Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazzwall Report on Fox News Radio. Today's show is about those who go from stereotype to prototype. You know, in fact, the word stereotype in the dictionary is defined as a widely held but oversimplified image of a particular type of person. So what image would you have if I told you that my next guest is a young black man? Would you be surprised if he came from a lower-income household? Would you be surprised if he was surrounded by drugs, alcohol, and violence growing up? Well, maybe, maybe not. But I bet you would be surprised if he overcame each of these stereotyped scenarios and still got ahead in life. My guest has come from a world of desperation to becoming a source of inspiration. From getting a scholarship to an Ivy League university, to becoming a published author, to being a principal of a middle school, to being a motivational speaker, and so much more. This man has achieved all of this, and the amazing thing is that he's only 26 years old. It's my pleasure to bring on to the show Sean Stevens, who's living proof that your demographics should never determine your destiny. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you so much, Vep. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. How are you doing, son? I'm doing well. spent the afternoon talking to my, my grandmother a little bit, so it's been great. Well, talking about your grandmother, what type of family did you come from? Tell us a little bit about you growing up. Um, well, you know, I came from a, a poor family, a very stereotypical black family uh, in a marginalized urban community, mm. low-income, f- growing up on food stamps. Um, the one thing that we had going for us was our family last name, which was notorious for drugs and violence, dating back uh, as far as my grandfather's time in the early 1960s. Um, we grew up in Section 8 housing. Um, I'm one of many children, I would say, but uh, even more than eight children between my mom and my, my, my father. But uh, I was raised by my grandmother and my uncle, who was just a pre-teenager when I was born. Uh, pretty big family, um, about 35 cousins, lots of aunts and uncles. And in my immediate household growing up, there were a number of aunts, uncles, cousins um, living with my grandmother and my siblings at any given point uh, in our lives. And to us, that was that was normal, being surrounded by lots of people um, supporting one, the, one another, but definitely came with lots of drawbacks, um, like space and sometimes even food. But all in all, uh, I came from a family that supported me the best way they could. We didn't have the best resources, um, no cable, no computers or cell phones or fancy things, but we did have my grandmother, uh, Dorothy Stevens, who is the backbone of my family. Uh, she cared for us, loved, loved us, and Sadly, when my mother didn't make the best choices, uh, took took care of us and raised us to the best. Of but us. you know, you're saying all of this, but you're not mentioning your parents. Yeah, you know, I didn't really have um, my mom or my dad in my life. My mom was heavily addicted to drugs ever since she was a child, um, and my father was a uh, infamous drug smuggler. Actually, mm. uh, my first parents are my grandmother uh, and my uncle, uh, who was her last-born son. He was 12 years old when we when we were born, um, and my uncle used to say when we were a little kid that there was no way that you and your family, your siblings were going to be, quote-unquote, in the systems or, or wards of the state, and that no matter what, um, our grandmother, who I called mom since birth, um, and my uncle, who I viewed as dad of the media family that raised me. So where's your mom now? Where's your dad? Um, couldn't tell you where my dad is right now, um, unfortunately. Um, my mother right now is... Uh, currently trying to overcome her addiction to drugs and in and out of our lives from from time to not time for a couple couple months here a couple months there I, i'm happy to say that for the past couple months she has been trying and making strong efforts to be a part of our life um despite having not been there for the beginning of our our lives 
So what do you feel when you see her? Um, you know, I can't, I, before I used to feel strong resentment. I used to feel um, lots of pain, lots of anger, lots of frustration and, and thoughts of, you know, why me? Why did you uh, have to give us up? But now, um, as I'm older and I've been reflecting on life, I, mm. I forgive her. And um, I'm, I'm thankful for the situation that she has birthed us into because it's made me a stronger person. But do you uh, find you accept her more when she shows up? Um, now I do. You know, it, I can't really say that we have a mother-son relationship. It's more of like um, a building friendship at this point. Mm. Um, and so she's very proud of the things that I've accomplished and um, trying to support me the best of her abilities. And, and I think that I get more fulfillment from her being in my younger siblings' lives than her sort of being in my life because I've sort of made a name for myself and worked hard, and now it's time to make sure that my younger brothers and sisters can achieve the same level of um, gratification that I've achieved so far. Now, you're only 26, but what values were you brought up with from your uncle and your grandmother and the rest of your family? Um, well, my grandmother was a uh, strong believer in God, and so I grew up um, religiously going to church every Sunday mm. uh, and valuing my relationship with, with God and um, definitely valuing family. Um, and lastly, you know, education. Uh, growing up, every Sunday we were in church. I remember being five and six years old, getting dressed in my little suiting, going to church with my aunts and uncles, um, and that was just something that, that you just did. It, wasn't a, it was a non-negotiable in my family. Well, I've family. seen your website, and you, know, you, you look like you're getting ready for church. You've got this bow tie going and the gold chain. Well, I hope that's a compliment. I mean, I'm no, it is a compliment. To work. <laughs> um, but it's yeah, better than you know, wearing jeans below your hips. Absolutely. Absolutely. Better, better than fulfilling a stereotype. I, I take pride in, in dressing, and my grandmother taught me that. Um, and also taught me above, above all else, it's, it's family, you know, after God, um, which is something I actually battled with growing up and becoming an adult, to be honest, because I felt that in a lot of ways growing up, my family couldn't help me through a lot of the challenging situations that I found myself in. Um, and, and later in life, I had to put my family second sometimes just for my own well-being and for my own sanity. Well, let's talk about the challenges, because I started the show with the stereotype. So there is that stereotype that, you know, black men are surrounded by drugs, alcohol, and violence. Mm -hmm. Were you surrounded by that? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, sadly, a, a lot of my family members are still victims of, of uh, the plague, a disease of addiction to drugs. Um, I was surrounded by drugs my entire life. Uh, I know that this is something probably hard for my family to hear me talk about many times. Mm. Um, but I used to remember walking in on my mother and my uncles using drugs. Um, it was terrifying. And, of course, my grandmother was greatly opposed, opposed to it, and she was never um, a, a drug addict or anything of the sort. Um, but I remember her often screaming and kicking them out of the house because my siblings and I were around, and she didn't want us exposed to that. Um, as a pre-teenager, I used to love hanging out with my older uncles. Um, uh, sadly, at times, the only source of money that was coming into our household was the money that was coming from the drugs he was selling. Um, and at times, I acted his wingman, and I would walk around the city with him and be with him as he sold drugs, which was quite dangerous. But as a kid, you know, we didn't, I didn't know any better. Um, there were times he made sales, and then we had to run to the top of buildings and hide for a couple minutes because he sold fake drugs um, just to make money. And uh, I, one, one situation comes to mind, actually, the scariest moment that I was with him was when he sold someone uh, what was called a, a bunk. He was te teaching me all the slang terminology. A bunk was fake cocaine at the time. Um, and we were walking down the block, and all of a sudden, two dudes walked up to him in hoodies uh, with their hands in their pockets. And as they walked up to him, I remember 
seeing him back against the wall. He didn't run, but he just yelled for me to run, and the two men attacked him, and I just remember running all the way home across the city um, back to my grandmother to tell him what happened. So in addition to all this drugs and violence, um, you're also surrounded by a lot of pain, it seems, growing up. A lot of pain, yes. So tell me tell me about the, the pain. Um, well, honestly, it first starts with, with my mother, who I'm very glad that she's overcoming the battles that she struggled with all her life now. But um, it was un- until about 12 years old, I was completely bitter. Um, I started to harbor very negative feelings towards my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to think... You know, why did, it, why did I have to grow up with, with so much pressure and responsibility? And I was, you know, holding up my siblings and holding up my grandmother, and I just felt that my childhood was lost. And, you know, I was born into this unforeseen circumstance that I really didn't have control of, over as a, as a child. Um, I felt abandoned um, at many times, and, and then I, I felt the need that I had to be strong for my siblings. So I, um, I remember I shut off my feelings towards her. I put up this emotional wall to block out um, all love and all affection that I had towards her just so I can show my siblings that we need to push through and that we only have each other. Um, Thankfully now I've I've completely forgiven my mother and forgiven my father, wherever he may be, um, because when you're addicted to drugs, it's it's a struggle to to gain back your own existence. You like so even though you've forgiven, even though you've forgiven, your your grandmother is still your mother. So forgiven in terms of you've accepted the situation that it is what it is and you're moving on. Absolutely. Not forgiving as in she's become your mother again. Absolutely not. No, but it's really forgiving for me because, you know, when you don't forgive, you harbor all those negative feelings and it only hurts you. Right. Now, we had a discussion a few days ago and you gave accounts of some deeply painful moments in your life. Yeah. So apart from mom, what was the other things? Um, well, the, the, one of the biggest moments I've had so many terrible things happen to me, unfortunately, um, was uh, Thanksgiving of 2002, which I think is a defining moment in my entire family's life. Um, it was Thanksgiving. Uh, we had a traditional, you know, Stephen's family Thanksgiving with laughs, love, and, and food. Um, earlier that day, we actually had come back from visiting my mother, who was in a drug rehabilitation program. Um, and my uncle uh, was taking me to buy some sneakers. The next day was Black Friday. We had never celebrated it because we never had the money. But I was being awarded with this brand-new pair of sneakers that I was excited about. So my two uncles and my uncle's girlfriend at the time got into the car um, to continue our great Thanksgiving. Um, I was in the back passenger seat next to my uncle. Um, and on the New Jersey Turnpike that night, a 16-wheeler truck hit us from behind. Um, mm-hmm. The next thing I remember was was rolling over in the grass. Um, I had been completely ejected through the passenger side window. I remember having um, just one sneaker on and blood all over my body. I heard screams um, from my uncle and his girlfriend, and as I walked back to the car, um, my uncle's girlfriend leg was stuck between the door. My uncle, who was driving, was physically pushed against the steering wheel, and my uncle, who was sitting just five inches away from me, uh, was stuck between the back of the car that had been completely smashed in to the driver's sh- seat, and uh, something sharp had impaled him, uh, and he was coughing up blood. And uh, at that moment, he was my main concern because of all the blood, and I remember grabbing his body and pushing the driver's seat further up, obviously injur- injuring my uncle who was driving even more, but um, enough to hold my uncle Lamont in my arms. And I just remember beginning to pray really loudly and, and crying and watching him cough up blood 
until he took his very last breath in my arm. Wow. How old were you then? I was 14. So at 14, you had death in your arms? I had death in my arms at 14, yes. And then something else very personal happened at the age of 14 as well, right? Yeah, as if things couldn't get worse. Mm. Um, I uh, was sexually assaulted. I was raped when I was 14. Um, and it was something that, for many years, I I told no one. I didn't tell a soul, actually, until I told my best friend, Jill, um, when we were our sophomores in college. Um, and uh, I, I think I was more afraid of what my family might do, you know, having um, uncles who were heavily in, involved in gang life and drug life. Um, I was afraid that just telling them they would be ignited to do something terrible to somebody else. Um, and I think more importantly, I just felt so confused. I felt violated. I, you know, it's one of those things, you know, you think that rape only happens to, to women. Um, and it was, I was ashamed. I, I figured if I had told anybody, I would become the Hester Prynne of the city. I would be wearing this haunting scarlet letter um, that everyone knew, and it was, it was embarrassing. Um, and it wasn't until my, my sophomore year in college where um, my friends and I were actually faced with a very similar situation where some one of our very close friends were sexually assaulted that um, I felt the need to just let go of harboring all of this, this fear um, and emotion that I was carrying with me because of it uh, and just let it out and talk to someone. And it was probably one of the most relieving feelings I've ever felt in my life to get, um, you know, uh, something that had been on my chest for, at that time, almost six years now, to finally converse with someone about it. and You were raped by another man? Yes. And this man was a stranger, or...? Um, he was a, a, a person who was around the way. Um, you often saw him, you know, riding bikes and, and hanging out in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, an associate, I would say, you know, we knew... Did you ever confront him after? <clears throat> I did not. I actually... Uh, uh, coming back from college one summer, was interacting with some old friends and found out that he had gotten murdered. Wow. Now, the other difficult moment in your life was when your aunt suffering from AIDS. Yeah, my um, my aunt Judy, who we we loved and um, took into our household when I was a a young kid. She was one of the uh, earliest. Um, victims of of the the HIV virus here in the early 1980s. Mm. Um, She eventually um, became full-blown with AIDS and and lived with AIDS for about a year before she passed. And, um, you know, we we were 9, 10, 11 years old growing up in the household with someone with AIDS. And then we didn't know, like my my siblings and I, we didn't know what that was. My family, you know, who was undereducated, really didn't even know how AIDS was um, given to one, given to someone else, and so there was a lot of fear in our ho- household. We couldn't eat off of the same forks. We had to make sure that the the tub was clean before we got into it. And granted, like now, as being educated, I know how um, you can give uh, the HIV virus to someone else. But growing up, we were just scared to do anything. Um, but we loved our aunt, and so we we kept her. And I just remember the last my last memory of her was the night she uh, caught a seizure. Um, in our living room. It was in the middle of the night, and uh, my grandmother was just holding her, and foam was coming up out of her mouth, and my uncle was screaming in the background saying, don't let it get on you, like you're crazy, like move, let's call the ambulance. And um, even then I just saw the resilience 
um, the, the passion, the love that my grandmother had for the family and for her own daughter who she was holding um, as, she, as she had her last seizure before she died. What goes through your young head when you're seeing so much pain and suffering so much of the time? You feel angry. <laughs> you feel frustrated. I felt um, hopeless. Um, what was going through my head at, the, at that time was that there's no, there's no end. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, sometimes I was going through so much with my grandmother and my family that, you know, even I wanted to end my life. Um, was, you had suicidal thoughts? Absolutely. I had suicidal thoughts. Uh, I, had them in, I had them in college. Um, and it was interesting because a lot of, you know, my family members say, uh, and a lot of friends, you know, black people don't commit suicide. We get over it. We work through it. Um, and, but that's hard. You know, depression has no color. When you're growing up in all of this, there, was, there were times I was completely depressed and wanted to give up everything, give up on myself, give up on my family, and, and thought that the easy way out would have been just to end it. Um, I wanted to just say, oh, well, you know, why don't I just go out and get addicted to drugs? You know, my family's doing it. Um, why not go join a, a gang? Why not sell drugs and make easy money? Um, and, and, and those are all the things that were going through my head as a young kid. Now, you have your uncles who are in jail at the moment, right? Yeah, my uncles are um, entering their 28th year in prison. Um, and you and used to go visit them every Sunday? Oh, every Saturday. Every Saturday, every okay. Saturday so, growing up. so jail on Saturday and church on Sunday. Jail on Saturday and church on Sunday. One of my uncles used to joke and say jail was our the Stevens family vacation spot. Um, which is something I can, you know, now sit back and laugh at. Mm. Um, but but even reflecting on that, how how crazy of a concept that is to know that on Saturdays... You know, Saturdays, going, House of Satan, and then Sunday's House of God. Absolutely, absolutely. And it, it truly is a House of Satan in there. I don't know how my uncles are doing it. I don't know how they're doing well, it. Well, did they ever tell you what the conditions are like in jail? Oh, yeah, all the time. And even, honestly, even as a visitor, mm. just, just going there, it's... It, it's cold. It's it's dark. It's territorial, um, and and then and the people, the, the the guards are rude. Um, that's really all that I can think of. They treat you as a second class citizen, even as a visitor. That just because you're coming to visit a family member um, in prison, that you're beneath the cops. That you're beneath the security. Uh, I've never felt more degraded in my life. Every time I go and visit them, it's demeaning. Um, I remember once I went back after graduating from college. I had this. Um, sense of anger and, and almost arrogance, honestly. You know, I was in, at an Ivy League and I was being educated and um, uh, knowing what I know now about the prison system, um, I wanted to stand up for the way we were being bossed around and told to do stuff and, and denied visits. Mm. Um, and that the guards had the, these insurmountable egos because they had badges and guns um, that, made me, that made them believe they were so much better than even the visitors. It's a, a, a horrible system. Did your uncles ever say what it's like in jail? You know, I don't think they 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 don't only because um, during that time it's a family time. It's a time to talk about the great things that are happening outside the jail walls. To talk about my sisters graduating from high school. Mm. And, you know, my my grandmother and and church and and all the things that make us who we are, um, which is very very sacrificial on their part. But they do it so that we can focus on all the positive things that are happening and not think about about them. But what do you see and what do you feel when you're there is enough to sort of keep you out of it? Um, 
I mean, I just can't imagine sitting in in a jail cell with four walls, mm. 23 hours a day, with only one hour to to breathe fresh air, to see sunlight, to to be able to walk um, more than a three feet radius. Uh, it's it's these things that you see just in movies, but you can't. You can't even imagine how it feels in there, the fear that is going through your head, um, not being able to sleep at night because of, of danger that's lurking and, and guards that, that aren't even there to protect you. You know, we have a system that's supposed to, to shield you, but even in there, it's, it's corrupt. So they never really go explicitly into detail about what happens in there. Mm. Um, and I don't even think any movie, no scared straight, no documentary can truly tell us anybody how it feels to be locked up in prison for 28 years. Well, let's shine some light on your life now. One of your first rays of hope was when you were admitted to a a private high school on a scholarship? Yes. What's Uh, the name of the school? The school is Dwight Inglewood in Inglewood, New Jersey. And this was a scholarship? Yes, I had... So how, from the remotest of places... Do they find you, or do you find them, and then you get this call? What were you doing that was right? You know, I um, I was the the top of my class. You know, I definitely had behavior issues. I was not an easy student to deal with by far, um, and had a lot of emotionally. Um, I had a lot of emotional disturbances growing up, and that made me act out in school. But um, I had heard about this great school, um, and my aunt, whose highest degree of education was her GED had a few neighbors. Um, she was lucky enough to marry someone who, who had a college education and had a different perspective on, on what the world is supposed to look and feel like. And um, her neighbors were sending these kids, sending their kids to this great school, Dwight Inglewood. Uh, of course, we couldn't afford the 20 thousand um, dollars it cost to attend at that time. Um, and I didn't want to go. Uh, I, I got accepted and um, continued. No, but you applied? Life. Yeah, I applied. Mm. And... Um, I applied. I wrote this phenomenal essay, according to the admissions um, council who's still there, phenomenal essay on how I did not want to attend the school. Um, <laughs> and, and they wanted me. They saw that I was a leader um, in the neighborhood. They saw I was a leader in my church. They saw that, you know, despite my disadvantages, I was getting the best grades, even though I was at a, a horrible school, mm. a horrible school system that had been telling me for years I was the best and brightest. Um, and then I got into Dwight Inglewood, and they said that, you know, you would have to repeat the grade. And you know, I looked at them as, as as if you're crazy. I have straight A's. I'm, you know, I'm a little bad. I get kicked out of class sometimes, but I, I got I got what it takes. Um, and I fought tooth and nail not to go because I was comfortable. It was easy for me to do the work that I was doing at my current school. I got good grades. I didn't want the change. Well, you were number one in your world. I was number one in my world, right. I was a diamond in the rough, um, shining brightly. And, um, why would I give that up to go with some white privileged kids? It's truly how I felt. Right. Um, but how do you think being a Dwight helped you? Oh, man. It helped me uh, in, in ways I can never imagine, despite, uh, despite the situation of being stuck in a rock and a hard place and going mm. to that school. Um, I learned the value of diversity. I learned the value of experiences. I believe that going to that school gave me a competitive edge. I was able to uh, travel to different countries and different continents and compete with, you know, to be quite frank, the white people who have been getting this education since they were in kindergarten or even preschool, um, who would go home to their their college-educated parents and have uh, exposure to 
uh, an impeccable vocabulary. Um, I didn't have any of this, and so I constantly surrounded myself with people who did. I think that Dwight Inglewood gave me access. Um, I learned the power of, of having access to things, of having uh, a network, uh, people in, the, in, in, in power. Um, I made friends with kids of the founders of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies um, and, and went over to their houses and hung out and talked to them and learned from them. I felt like, honestly, I was being adopted by wealthy people in the, in, in the intellectual sense, and I so took advantage of it. Let me ask you this. How did you feel being around more privileged kids? Oh, man, I felt poor. <laughs> I felt even more poor. I didn't have anything to start with. Um, well, doesn't it I, give you a sense of insecurity? Yeah, I was completely insecure. Um, and I felt stupid. It was the first time in my life when I went there and I was in class. Like, I felt stupid. And for a second, I'm one to talk, as you can see. But I um, I shut down. I didn't speak in class. I didn't speak. I, I didn't make friends. I didn't want to make friends. Um, Did you want to go back to your old school? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, it, like, that, like literally everything except for the, the hours of the school day was the White Inglewood. Other than that, I was in my community. I was with my old friends. I was hanging out at our old hangout spots. I just felt like I didn't belong, and I, I was an outcast. And okay, so that question leads to what kept you there? Um, competition. You're competitive. I'm very competitive. I'm very competitive. I've always been competitive running track in, in, in middle school and high school, and um, I don't even know where I got that competitive edge from. I don't think anyone in my family is as competitive as me, but I wanted to be better than them. I got to that school and something clicked within me, and I wanted to stomp with the best of them. I wanted to beat them at their own education game, mm. even though I had started years behind. I wanted to prove to everyone that, yep, you made me do this year. You made me repeat. Like, I know I'm smart. I'm sitting in these classes feeling like I'm dumb. Nope, I'm not going to do it. And my competitive spirit kicked in, and um, I, pu I pushed through. So did you get bullied in your neighborhood or bullied at school? Bullied at school maybe for being poor and black or bullied in the neighborhood for going to a white school? Uh, no, I mean, it depends on what bullying you mean in a sense. I feel like I was more of a bully to people. But um, I think that, you know, when you achieve a certain level of success, mm. and even when you're going to that school, you're, you're still stuck between a, a rock and a hard place. You mm. know, at times, you know, my friends would say, oh, well, now you talk like a white boy. Oh, oh now you think you're better than us. Um, and, and feeling like that, you know, made me wanted to prove them wrong. Like, no, I'm still, you know, I'm still one of you. How dare you say that? How, like, I'm still from the hood. I'm still from, like, you don't know my story. Um, and it, it made me very, very defensive in a, in a way, and it's because that they, didn't, they didn't understand, right? right. They, they didn't understand that I wanted to gain this access to be able to pull not only my family out, but to come back to my community say, and do the same great things. You say they don't understand or they didn't understand. Was it more jealousy or ignorance? It was more ignorant. I, you know what? I would say it was 50-50. <clears throat> I would never want to think that anybody would be jealous of, 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 get, of gaining more opportunity in life. Um, but sadly, and quite frankly, like that's how some African-American people are. We're like crabs in the barrel sometimes. We see somebody climbing a ladder of success, and we want to pull them down, especially if you're from the, you know, you grew up with the same resources in the same household. And that's unfortunate that we feel that way sometimes. But, but you know, I think that's human nature. Yeah, it's it, it's not relevant to any community. I think it, it's it's uh, pretty much all around. Mm -hmm. um, but now you took it one step even further. You went to an Ivy League. You went to Cornell. I sure did. Very proud of that. Well, I'm very proud of you. Wow. Thank you. How did that happen? Was that difficult? 
Um, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, I think it was really difficult. I, something clicked within, within me in 11th grade um, where I just was determined to mm. get straight A's and to be involved in every organization at school and to change policies and to challenge the White Angle Award. Um, and, you know, I, I think I made a name for myself, and I, it felt good. It felt so good uh, to know that in my junior year of high school I had above a 4.0 average. Um, getting A pluses in some classes, and and then I said, you know what? Well, maybe maybe Ivy League is where I'm supposed to be. Maybe college is where I'm supposed to go. Um, and and it was hard. Like I put together, yeah, I pulled out all the stops. I I sent videos of me running track. I sent videos of me performing and playing piano and playing violin and acting on stage. And I thought I had to just lay out my entire life to Cornell in order for them to let me in. Um, You're taking more selfies than Kim Kardashian then. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> Sending in DVDs and everything, and and uh, December fifteenth, two thousand six, when I got that that letter, um, one of the greatest moments of my life. What did Cornell teach you that Dwight didn't? What did Cornell teach me that Dwight didn't? Um, you know, I feel like at Cornell, I had to even challenge myself further to be even more competitive and to fight harder. You mm. know, a lot of people say, and I don't know how anyone could even shape their their brains to say that Cornell is one of the easiest Ivies to get into and the hardest to get out. Um, getting into college in and of itself is, is a feat. In and of itself is difficult enough. Um, but going to Cornell, those were the most four challenging years of my entire life. I'm talking up for 72 hours a day studying, um, 72 hours a week studying, up you know, late at night and crying and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears literally went into getting that degree, which is why my friends and I um, are in a circle. We are so proud to call ourselves Cornell University graduates because it was so hard to get out of that place. I want you to take you. I want to take you out of yourself, and I want you to look back. You know, I'm trying to figure out because I'm very inspired listening to you, and I want to learn from you. Um, what? was your driving force that kept you on the straight and narrow? Forget about succeeding. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you're surrounded in a world of temptation from where you come from, and it's not necessarily good temptation. Right. So what's your thought process? How do, how do you keep yourself focused? You know, I, I keep my, myself focused. I think it comes really from my passion to want more. Um, I want more. I want more from, from life. I want more from myself. Um, I remember in fourth grade when my grandmother sent, us, sent me to the store with food stamps and, uh, to get milk. And I just, like, I had no concept of what food stamps really was, but I always questioned, well, why is this not real money? Um, I remember watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which I tell my friends is a joke, but now it's so real to me. Like, why couldn't I live that life that Will Smith lived to, to have the rich uncle on the other side of the of the country and go live with him and and feel what it feels like to have room in a in a in a house to mm. feel what it feels like to have access and to ride in a car which seems really small but you know we didn't have a car in, in our family until I was a teenager um, to have cable and it really what drives me is my desire to want more and to be able to inspire people to have that same feeling to same have that same you could take uh, all those same feelings and do drugs within a week you could become an expert dealer mm -hmm. within two weeks you could buy yourself a flashy car some jewelry 
Um, and you could inspire the wrong kind of people, but you're still inspiring people True. who want to be in, in that sort of world. Mm -hmm. So what takes you away from that and, and keeps you on the straight and narrow road, which is very difficult to do? Um, because you know what? To be good the way you're being good takes time. Absolutely. It takes years of effort. Absolutely. You know, years in high school, years in college, now you're doing a Ph.D., What 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 makes you? What keeps your moral compass pointing north? Honestly, I would have to tie it back to my grandmother and mm. my family and my upbringing. Um, I think we we came from nothing. Like we, my family still has nothing. Um, my family right now is even battling moving locations, living in Section Eight houses, and I just remember all my life my grandmother wanting to buy the BMW she's always wanted, always wanting to live in the house with the lawn that she's always desired. Mm. Um, when things got rough, you know, I just, it, I visualize us having all of this. Um, you know, she, she asked me this morning, like, listen, are you playing the lottery? I'm like, no, mom, like, I'm working hard. I'm trying to, to get us what we need. I don't want to put all of our eggs in one basket. I don't want us to put it in a number and hope for the best. Like, I want to be able to, to pull you out. Um, and I think what keeps me focused is, mm. is the, 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 the love of helping somebody else, the love of giving someone hope. You know, when I think, what, when I think about what motivates me, it's, it's really walking around the streets of New York City and seeing that there's a sense of hopelessness. Every morning I look into the eyes of hundreds of students who every day now, because I'm in their life, believe that their destiny is college and access to extended, ex expanded opportunities. When I look into parents' eyes and talk to families, I feel that I give them a greater sense of optimism, and that's what keeps me morally focused. Like, that's what drives me every single day to wake up and enjoy everything that I'm doing. Is that the same feeling you experienced when you received scholarships from Dwight and Cornell? Yes. Uh, that you felt someone out there was there to help you. So you uh, can feel other people's pleasure when you're helping them because you've been in the same boat? Absolutely. Absolutely, and it, it's one of the greatest feelings in the world to be able to open up somebody's life, mm. to literally change, literally change someone's life without someone who said, like, yes, you're going to come to Dwight Engel, without me working hard and people pushing and saying, yes, you're going to come to Cornell University. I would not have these opportunities. I would not be able to speak life and hope and optimism into other people, and I believe that is my calling, to make sure that other people know that regardless of your circumstance, you can do it. Your life is surrounded by a certain amount of dark space. And I remember when we spoke before, you talked about the importance of self-motivation. Absolutely. Now, you would know more than me even about how, it's, how easy it is to get back into that funk of emotions where you know you're trying to be positive but it's so much easier to get into a negative spot absolutely how do you keep self-motivated that's a hard question I mean and I don't want to hear that you want to see the joy in other people's faces and blah 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 if I see someone too much too much happier than me I get a little upset like why can't yeah, I be that that's true that's true, <laughs> that's true. so um, I think that you I don't know. You gotta want it. You gotta believe in it. You gotta claim it verbally. You gotta hear yourself say it, um, and you have to envision it. I, 
when I'm in that dark space, I envision myself publishing books. I envision myself um, signing autographs. I envision myself giving speeches that will change lives. I, you know, I state to some of my scholars every day that I, I want to be writing your recommendation letters to some of the greatest universities in this country, and that I'll be there at your graduation pushing you constantly. Um, I think when I'm in that dark space, uh, even on a daily basis, I look at my vision board, which is really just a bunch of words taped on the entrance um, of my door in my, my apartment, but every day I see these words, words like entrepreneur, educational leader, motivational speaker, founder, world changer. Like every day I think of, of how can I do better than I did the day before. Um, and when I'm in those dark spots, like I just truly push myself to think positively, motivate myself to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that you know, saying, like, you just gotta, you just gotta want it. You gotta be passionate and unapologetically desire the, a positive outcome for your life. So I'm taking away four things. You gotta envision it. Yes. You have to say it repetitively to yourself. Absolutely. You have to have a strong level of self-belief. And you have to be able to see it in terms of your vision board. Yep. You gotta read it, write it, say it, and live it. If I had to ball it up into that, read it, write it, say it, and live it. You've got to visualize it. At a very young age, you sort of managed to master what all the other people, the uh, motivational guys, seem to be telling us. You're telling us the same thing, but you've experienced it personally. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, when Having you say that makes me think of Simon Sinek, who is someone who I love. Um, he's an author and speaker on leadership. Mm. He talks a, a lot about, like, what's your why? Like, why do you do the things that you do? And when I think back to what my why is, it's, it's because I truly believe that there are thousands of young black and Latino men out there, and men of all colors, yeah. who have lived similar child, childhoods as mine, and I firmly believe that regardless of your circumstance, when, when you find that intrinsic motivation to want more for your life and those around you, you will push yourself. You won't have, you, you won't have a choice to. You know Napoleon Hill? Yes. He says exactly what you say. Mm. How do you harness now this positive energy and dispose of the negative energy when you come across a moment of weakness? Um... I, I tap deeply into my support systems. I know this is probably going to sound cliche, but like I call on my closest friends. Mm. I call on the, on the people who I know will give me that harsh feedback, will tell me like, nope, Sean, you're going too far, or yep, I agree with you. I go to those people who are going to say, listen, don't be a victim of your circumstance. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to sit here and be sympathetic with you. Like, you push yourself this far. I don't expect nothing less of you but to keep going. And then and that's hard. To, you know, so that's hard you to surround hear. yourself with, with positive people. you got to surround yourself with positive people. And that's hard to hear when you, I'm coming to my friend and I kind of, like sometimes I want to say like, oh, man, like, yeah, you had a messed up life, man. I, yeah, it really sucks. But no, mm. I want to hear that. But my friends who are positive and those around me who I keep in my life, my support systems, are only those who are going to say, yep, I hear you. Now, what email are you going to write to change someone's life? Who are you going to connect to to propel your, your vision? Well, let's name the who. Uh, let's do a shout-out. Two people in real life who inspire you. Real life, as opposed to your icons. In real life? Yeah. 
I guess one would be a grandmother? My good, yeah, that's without my grandmother. Um, my grandmother has had one of the most challenging lives I've ever, I've ever, I've ever seen. Um, it's a story untold, and, and, and yet she still continues. And this is what pushes me. She continues to love and desire more from her life, even in her old age. And she still has nothing, and raised eight kids, and raised um, 35 grandchildren. And she is the epitome of hope that drives me to achieve more and more. I never met someone who continues to dish out so much love and support. And um, your second person? Um, my second person. I mean, this is more of like an icon, but I, I, I love... Okay, let's do an icon. I love Jeffrey Canada, um, the founder, the, the uh, president of Harlem Children's Zone. Um, just watching him speak and seeing him move in New York City and Harlem and seeing his passion um, for, for education... Uh, just really, really pushes me to, to work just as hard, if not harder than he's worked, um, to evoke the positive change in New York City and all across the world that we need to see in education. You talk about education. Is there, in your experience, an education inequality in this country? Because you're working in charter schools, you're educating underserved students. Is there an education inequality or imbalance? Absolutely. Tell me about it. Absolutely, there's an education inequality. Like this system, even from my own experiences, I was going to schools that were telling me I was the best and brightest, and I was going off to some of the greatest universities where I got to a school and compared to my white counterparts that were not too far, they blew me out the water with their academics, with with their level of, of, of experiences from their families and their lives. Like, of course, like we live in a world where Unfortunately, demographics do determine your destiny. Because of the zip code that you're born in, your, your, your future is almost dictated for you. Um, and that shouldn't be. Like, I, well, I, your future was dictated for you, in inverted commas, but uh, you haven't let it materialize. No, not at all. You've gone and from I, stereotype to prototype. And sadly, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the 1%. And I think that all of the 1% to sort of just band together and, mm. and help everybody and, and influence that change on a, on a grand level in our, in our, in our world. Um, so what are you doing to do to cure this imbalance? Um, I'm an educator. I refuse to leave education. I refuse to um, not, be, not be on a platform where I'm constantly speaking life into people and inspiring in any different way and contributing to um, closing the, the education gap that exists in America. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'm, I'm never going to stop doing it. I want to open schools. I want to start nonprofits that help people. I want to be a, a life system, not just a support system, but a life system for communities all across America. Well, I want to talk about the non-for-profit, but very quickly, if you had to fix three things in our school system relatively quickly that were easy to do that you've seen, what would you do? Um, well, one of them is being done already right now, thank God, for higher expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, Forty-six of our states in the country have uh, adapted the Common Core standards that are really um, setting a high bar in terms of acad- academics for our kids that we must achieve to. Um, I think another... I don't know if this is a quick fix, but I truly believe as a culture, Mm. the educational culture in America is one that undermines the importance of teachers. You know, like in places like South Korea and Japan and Finland who have these great education systems, when you walk into a room and you're a teacher, Mm -hmm. they bow to you. You you. You are the highest in society because they understand how important it is 
and the role the life a teacher the role a teacher plays in the life of a child. Um, and That's I think true that because you know if you're answering a question to a teacher in a classroom, you have to stand up and answer it. Oh, absolutely! And here you'll be lucky if you're answering a question right. when a teacher asks. So, what annoys you most of the young people of today's world? Oh man, that they think that you know they're they're passive about their education. Mm. Um, it annoys me that that they don't think that edu- that education is not cool. You know, kids have such negative attitudes towards education and to because of fear of what people might say around them or fear that like, oh, well, I'm I'm being white or, you know, they don't truly believe yet that knowledge is power and education is truly the only key to success. And that annoys me. They need to understand that it is cool to be smarter than the person next to you, that it is cool to go to college and make something of yourself and be unapologetic about how passionate they are to grow their brains. That's what I would love to tell young people today. We're running short on time, but I want to very quickly, because I want you to recite the poem that's come from your book called Unseen Thoughts. Very quickly, what is Unseen Thoughts about? Unseen Thoughts is a a collection of uh, 15 spoken word pieces that chronicle Mm. my life events. It's an autobiographical anthology of spoken word pieces that I use to inspire all across America. Who should be reading it? Everybody should be reading it, um, especially young young kids. Um, but but everyone I feel can be inspired by my story. Now the beauty of this book is you published it yourself. I did. I self published because I enjoy the challenge of getting out there and just pushing it myself. Here again, you're going over the odds and you don't take no for an answer. Um, where can we get it? You can get it um, on my website at seanlarry.com or Barnes and Nobles on Amazon.com. All right, well, just hold it right here because I'm going to sign off and I'm going to give you the mic. Um, I want you to read out the poem called They Said. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your followers so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswell and my Facebook page. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive, inspiring, and a happy week ahead. I leave you with Sean Stevens and his poetic prose called They Said. You want to know what they said? I'll tell you what they said. I didn't believe them, but the thoughts still linger throughout my head. They said, I'll either end up in prison, on drugs, or I'll end up dead. I know it's hard to believe to see this man stand before you today, but let me just tell you, life was not always this way. Powerlessly born to a mother on crack and a drug lord father that I never knew, they said, I'll just get lost in this unjust system for blacks. And for a second, yeah, I thought so too. They said, I'll never make it. That I'll never amount to anything, drug selling, weed smoking, hustling for a piece of change. Seeing people die right in front of my eyes was a life I used to lead. At 10, watching my mother do crack and friends offering us weed. Those were our role models. Clearly, that was the only way to succeed. You want to know what they said? I'll tell you what they said. I didn't believe them, but the thoughts still linger all throughout my head. They said I'll either end up in prison or on drugs or I'll end up dead. It all started about 20 years ago, growing up as a product of my environment, completely out of my control. But listen closely to see how these events unexpectedly unfold. I was two years old, where my uncles were sentenced 25 to life, murdered a man. What a life to have. But I knew at two years old that that wouldn't be my path. I was 11 years old when I watched my aunt die from AIDS, this unparalleled, infectious, epidemic disease. 
I knew that at 11 years old that this wasn't going to be the life that I was going to lead. I was 12 years old, chasing my mother through the streets of the city from crack house to crack house to jail cells and back. I knew at 12 years old that my life wasn't going to be spent strung out on crack. I was 14 years old when I met the dude who fathered me for only the second time in life just to hear this guy say, here's 10 bucks, go buy yourself something nice. I knew that at 14 years old that being a deadbeat dad wasn't going to become my life. I was 15 years old, Thanksgiving Day. Fatal car accident took my only father figure away. And at 15 years old, I knew that drunk driving wasn't the way. I've seen and done things that most people can't even imagine, rape, violence, drugs, death, prison, disease, and murder. Trust and believe that's not even a half. I've witnessed things completely unheard of. I know it's hard to believe to see this man stand before you today, but let me just tell you, life was not always this way. You want to know what they said? I'll tell you what they said. I didn't believe them, but the thoughts still lingered throughout my head. They said I'll end up in prison on drugs or I'll end up dead. But at 22 years old, I stood in front of 97,000 people proudly. I said proudly accepted my Ivy League degree that they said I'll never see. Two majors, two minors. I was graduating with honors. No mother or father. Why stress? Why bother? With a resume, impressive. A work ethic, relentless. A master's in progress. A doctorate, not far from. A leader, innately. A fighter, unbeatably. A business, I own one. A motivator, second to none. A vocabulary, impeccable. A vision, priceless. A musician, matchless. A statistic, you wish. You want to know what they said? I'll tell you what they said. I didn't believe them, but the thoughts still linger all throughout my head. They said I'll either end up in prison, on drugs, or I'll end up dead. You want to know what I say to them? Your words challenged me to defeat all the odds, pushed me to my best, made me better than the rest. Your unfulfilled prophetic words made me young, gifted, and black, ready to change this world and save somebody like myself. Now prepare for my attack. I know it's hard to believe to see this man stand before you today. Let me just tell you, life is what you make it. Choose to live it your way. Never listen to what they have to say. (laughs) 